Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So like I said, this week our, our goal is to finish John chapter 1. It's, there's, there's quite a few verses there, but we're not going to spend a ton of time on each one. There's kind of three scenes that John, the gospel writer, is going to bring us through this morning. And we're, gonna, we're just going to pick apart those scenes one by one and understand what it is that Jesus is trying to reveal about himself through these, uh, through these scenes. So we're going to start with John 1, verse 19 to 28. Let me read that one together with you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well then, who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. All right. So we're reading here about John the Baptist and his ministry. Once again, the person who wrote the the book of John is different than John the Baptist who we're reading about. So I'll try to keep those astray for us as we can this morning. So John the Baptist, through his ministry of baptizing people and preaching this message, prepare the way for the Lord, he is clearly gaining a lot of attention. But staying true to his God-given ministry, he directs all of the attention that he receives on to Christ. He's the forerunner for the Messiah, once again. So this group of people sent by the Pharisees were here to question John. It was practically an informal interrogation. Their goal wasn't definitely to support his ministry. And when they question John specifically about why he's baptizing people, John uses this as an opportunity to point them to Jesus. So verse 26 and 27 said, this was John's response. I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. So what John means is, I'm merely baptizing with water. This is just a symbol of the real baptism that the Messiah is going to offer. We're going to talk about that more in verse 33. When John says that he's not worthy to even be a slave and untie the straps of of Jesus' sandals, that's who he's talking about. He means that his ministry, his worthiness, his value pales in comparison to the ministry and the worthiness and the value that Jesus has. You know, I think if we were in John's position, it would have been kind of easy to feel threatened or attacked, nervous, embarrassed, or even intimidated by this kind of interrogation that the Pharisees had launched against John. 
Who are you? What gives you the right to do this or that, right? That's the, the tone that they come with. But I love that John sees this as just another opportunity to point people to Jesus. He deflects all the negativity, all that negative attention that he's given in this moment, and he uses it to talk about the greatness of the Messiah. It takes a lot of character to do something like that. That's not easy to do. In our flesh, we very quickly feel offended instead of saying, oh, awesome. These guys want to talk about Jesus, right? Because they're all about looking for the Messiah. They're all about looking for Elijah or the prophet, all these things that are the promises of God. Oh, you guys are looking for Jesus? Great, I am too. So John doesn't even take the offense. He just sends them on to who the true Messiah is. And he doesn't do it by being a jerk. He just does it by being honest. Arthur Blessett, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him, but Arthur Blessett, that is his real name, is an evangelist who shares the message of Jesus by carrying a cross all over the world. He literally has a large wooden cross, and it rests on his shoulder, and he carries this cross all over the world. He's been through 324 countries. Since 1968, so for 54 years, Arthur has helped people all over the world know know who Jesus is just by carrying this big wooden cross and talking to people wherever he goes about who Jesus is. Because clearly, a man walking down a highway in the middle of North Dakota is probably going to be a conversation starter, right? And and he actually, uh, I talked to someone who spotted him on Highway 2 last summer. Okay, so he has been in our neck of the woods. So near the beginning of his cross-carrying ministry, Arthur attached a small wheel to the bottom of the cross so that he could roll it instead of dragging it. And Arthur tells a story about how some people like to take shots at him saying, hey, Jesus' cross didn't have a wheel on it, buddy. And in that moment, Arthur has to choose how he's going to respond to comments like this, just like John the Baptist had to choose how he would respond when these Pharisees came to take shots at him. Arthur typically responds in a tender voice. And I've seen a video of him telling this story. It's just so, he's just so pastoral and humble. I love it. So Arthur, he responds by saying, you're right. Jesus's cross didn't have a wheel on it. What else do you know about Jesus's cross? And then he just turns it back to them just so gently, right? And then if they know anything else about Jesus's cross, they they share some facts. And he says, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm so glad that you know those things. That's really important. But if they don't know anything about Jesus' cross, besides that it didn't have a wheel on it, then Arthur gets to tell them about Jesus. He says, oh, this cross is important, friends. This cross is where God's son died to save you from a life without him. And he just launches into the gospel. He doesn't get hung up at all on the offense that he could be taken, but instead he just wants to bless people with the good news about Jesus. I love how he chooses in that moment to say, it's not about me and being offended. I'm here just to share Jesus with everyone who would talk to me, whether their motives are good or bad. I think that's just marvelous. The next section here in John chapter 1 is uh, verses 29 to 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. 
I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me the one on whom you see the the spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Pretty amazing testimony if we really stop and look at this. We, we assume that because John the Baptist was born and he was prophesied about and he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth, that he knew everything there was to know about Jesus. But clearly here it says that God had to reveal something to him. And that's a, that's a good thing for us to understand. So in this scene, John the Baptist is letting people know without a doubt that Jesus is the Lamb of God. When John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he's telling people that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrificial lamb that will ever be required because Jesus will sacrifice his life to take away the sins of all people who believe in him once and for all. So up until this point, just a little bit of cultural context Up until this point, the Jewish people that were surrounding John when he was saying these things, they had adhered to a strict sacrificial system that required lambs to be sacrificed in order for them to be forgiven for their sins. So reiterating what he had said in John in verse 27, John says in verse 30 that Jesus is far greater than he is. So this is, this is John pointing to Jesus saying, look, this is the sacrifice. This is the one you've been waiting for, I've been waiting for. This is the one that the whole nation of Israel has been hoping for for years and years. I love, though, that John says, this is the one, not me. Don't look at me. Look at the one who I'm looking to. So yes, John's ministry existed first. The whole reason for John's ministry, though, is to point people to Jesus. And John does not hesitate when that opportunity presents itself. So here's the question. How does John know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Again, God revealed it to him. The reason why I wanted to to highlight that is because sometimes we hold John the Baptist up on a pedestal. And if John needed God to reveal a truth about Jesus to him, do you think that you and I need God to reveal truth about his son to us as well? Anyone know? Yes. Oh, okay, good. It is a, it's a big time yes. If we ever think that no matter what stage of life we're at, no matter how much we know about Jesus already, no matter what age we're at, how long we've been to church, all those things, how many times we've read the Bible, if we ever begin to think, I think I got it all figured out, that's the moment where you are in the most perilous position of your life because you and me always need God to reveal more things about his son to us. Because even if it's something that has been revealed to us at one point, do we always remember everything that we've ever heard? No. So we need God to continue to reveal to us through his Holy Spirit who Jesus is, what he's all about, and his will for our lives. I don't ever want to rest on my own wisdom. I always want to go to God and ask him to reveal what, is, what I need to know. I did that this morning for the year 2022. And I think there's more that I need to ask Jesus about. I want to continue to follow him this year more than any other year of my life. It's interesting how God reveals who Jesus is to John. So many times we think about John's ministry of baptizing people. It was just to help people repent, right? But it was actually to reveal 
Jesus to the nation of Israel because God had told John, the one on whom you see the the spirit descending in the form of a dove, that is my son. That's the one that I've chosen. So John probably is eager at this point to baptize people saying, okay, is it this one? No, not this one. Is it this one? No, not this one. And he keeps going. And then all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove on Jesus, can you imagine John's elation? He's been looking forward to this moment. Oh yeah, God told me this and I believe it. So I'm going to be obedient and just watch to see what happens. And eventually he baptizes Jesus. And Jesus is revealed to him and to everyone else who's there in the nation of Israel that he is God's Messiah. So the other thing that John points out too is that he baptizes with water. But Jesus, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that Jesus is going to baptize us in a way that purifies us. John's baptism and the baptism that we had here a couple of weeks ago, the water baptism that we use, is purely symbolic. It doesn't actually do a thing for you. Besides the fact that you get to enter into a, a stage of obedience by doing what Jesus has asked us to do. But it doesn't purify you spiritually. It doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't fill you with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get you a better seat in heaven. All the baptism is that we do is symbolic of what Jesus has done through the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus' Jesus's Holy Spirit, when it enters your life, that is what purifies you and saves you from your sins. The water baptism that we do here just says this is what has happened. So this is a physical way for us to symbolize this spiritual truth that has taken place in our lives. So we've, we've gone through kind of the two easier scenes so far this morning. Those ones are a little bit quicker. They, they give us some great truth, some wonderful things for us to take note of, and some great things to think about. But now, now we're going to kind of turn it up a notch here in this last section. Let's read together uh, John 1, verse 35 to 51. And then we'll talk about what these things mean. The following day, so another day yet... John was again standing with two of his disciples. That's right, John had some followers. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was only about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. 
Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see all, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Okay, a few parts going on in this, in this section. So let's, let's pick it apart a little bit. Here we're seeing the very beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus starts calling some of his disciples to follow him. Andrew and another unnamed person had been disciples under John the Baptist. But now Andrew and this other person, in a way that would have brought so much joy to John the Baptist, they leave John and they go and follow Jesus, the one who John the Baptist was preparing the world to receive. Jesus sees them following and he asks, what do you want? You know, it's, it's crazy. You have to read these things with the tone and the character of Jesus. We could, we could read it in an annoyed voice and we would totally miss what Jesus is really doing here. He's not like, what do you want? Like Jesus wouldn't say that to these guys. But I think what he's actually doing here is asking them, what does your heart desire? Right? He turns around to see Andrew and this other person following and says, what do you guys want? What do you want out of this life? What do you want from me? What do you want your life to amount to or to focus on or to become, right? And it, it's interesting the response that Andrew and this other unnamed disciple have. So Jesus asked them, what do you want? And they respond with a question themselves. They ask, where are you staying? Why would they ask why, where Jesus is staying? I think it's because they want to know where Jesus is going because they want to be with Jesus. And that's the answer to the question, what do you want? Andrew and this other disciple are saying, well, we want to be with you. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. We can just quickly go through these kinds of conversations and it's like, oh, that was weird and, and shrug it off and move on. But when you stop and understand like, what follows this and the life that Andrew commits to because of this question that Jesus asked, what do you want? I think it's marvelous. And it's, it's a good thing for us to think about. Uh, so I, I put the question to you, friends. You're in proximity to Jesus. Someone else has pointed him out to you. And now my question to you is, what do you want? What do you want from Jesus? What do you want your connection or knowledge of him to look like? What do you want it to amount to? What significance do you want behind your knowledge of Jesus? That's a question that we should be asking ourselves every day. Look in the mirror and say, whatever your name is, and say, what do you want from Jesus today? Because if, we, if we're willing to ask ourselves that question, perhaps we answer honestly and say, you know, maybe I don't want enough from him. Maybe we stop and answer and say, oh man, I want so much more than I've ever experienced before. And then when we ask those questions and we answer honestly, then all of a sudden we put ourselves in a, in a, in a heartfelt position to actually receive everything that Jesus desires to give us. His answer wasn't to Andrew and this other disciple, 
you know, guys, I'm kind of busy today. I got this whole ministry thing that I'm launching. It's just really not a good time. (laughs) He didn't say that at all. He told them where he was staying, and they spent the rest of the day with him. After spending a day with Jesus, John, the gospel writer, he follows Andrew and his story a little bit. It says that Andrew's noticeably excited. He goes to tell his brother, Simon, we found the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for generation after generation. He's here. It's real. It's happening. You know what I like about this is that Andrew isn't prophesied about by some Old Testament prophet saying, and then there will be a man named Andrew who will recognize Jesus and he will testify to his brother and this will start a mighty movement. It doesn't say that. So what we know about Andrew is he is a regular dude, okay? He's just regular, average guy. And what he does is he sees Jesus. Someone tells him this is the Lamb of God. Andrew desires to spend time with him. He's changed in his heart because clearly he goes in and he comes out different than when he went in. And based on that experience with Jesus, he goes to Speak the name of Jesus to someone else. Exactly what we talked about doing last week. I love this. So Andrew talks to Simon, and and Simon seems willing enough to come and meet Jesus as well. So Andrew takes him to meet Jesus. Simon uh, comes, and, and then Jesus has this interaction with Simon that's just amazing to me. Verse 42 says, Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John. But you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the name Cephas is Aramaic. The name Peter is Greek, but they mean the same thing. Both of those names mean rock. So in giving Simon this new name, calling him Peter, Jesus is actually revealing something about Simon's future. He's not just giving him a new nickname because they're part of a cool group and they're all going to have these special names. But Jesus is actually calling Peter into a new identity. He gives the impulsive, stubborn, and strong-willed Simon Peter a glimpse of who he will become as the grace of Jesus transforms his heart into a faithful rock for Jesus Christ. Isn't it remarkable, friends, that Jesus knows exactly who we are? He knows all of our hang-ups and our flaws and our issues, yet he doesn't look at us and say that those things determine who we can be in him. Jesus knows who you are, and he knows who you can be. And Jesus wants to transform you by his grace so that you and I will live with righteousness. Paul knows that this is what Jesus wants to do in the lives of all of his followers So he prays this prayer for the Philippian church. This is years after Jesus walked the earth. Paul prays for the Philippians saying, May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. So believing in Jesus is meant to lead us to developing in character and righteousness. This is the lifelong process of all Christians, lifelong. It's not like, hey, we met Jesus and now we've hung out for him, with him for a couple of weeks and now we got it all figured out. No, we don't. I know I don't. Man, it is a lifelong endeavor to seek the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what he compels us to do in Matthew six thirty three. He says, seek my kingdom and my 
righteousness. The things and the way that I do them that are right according to me. So this name change isn't nearly as much about who Simon Peter is going to be called, but it's totally about who Christ is going to transform him to be. Peter, the rock, brings glory and praise to God. When I was 19, I remember sensing for the first time in my life that Jesus was desiring to change my identity. Just like Peter was going to be a rock for Jesus, Jesus had something that he wanted me to be for him. I didn't get a cool nickname, but my last name is already Peter's, so maybe that counts. But in my first year out of high school, I sensed Jesus calling me to be his encourager. I discovered this as I felt him speaking to me after learning more about spiritual gifts. And being an encourager really resonated with me. When I was 22, a few years later, God clearly called me to be his servant. It's a very different circumstances. I sensed this as God gave me a fatherly warning to make me focus my life on him after some rebellious years. When I was 27, God called me to be a pastor to youth. I wish it was a cool name, but it's just pastor. God revealed to me that this is what he wanted for my life, even though I believed sincerely in all my heart that there was not a church on God's green earth that would ever be interested in having me come to be their pastor. Since then, God has spoke to me on several other occasions about a role or an identity that he wants me to strive for in his kingdom. Each time God speaks to me and and calls me a name or gives me a, a purpose in my heart, I begin to wonder about God's direction for my life and what his desires are. I'm excited, of course, to see what God's doing in me. But at the same time, I'm curious and I'm a little nervous because, ooh, you want me to do that? Are you sure you got the right Jeff Peters? I'm not sure if you do. It means when God calls us something, it means that he knows something about us that we didn't know about ourselves. And he's calling us according to his plans for us. And the older I get, the more I'm amazed that God would do this in me. I think, I think of all the things that disqualify me from, from being who Christ is identifying me as. But Jesus sees what he is willing and able to do in me. And friends, Jesus wants to do all these same things in your life as well. I've seen this exact thing happen in many Christians. Jesus speaks to them about what he wants to do in their lives. And the only thing that depends on us is if we are open to receiving, believing, and obeying what Jesus is calling us to do and to be on his strength. When Jesus told Simon that he would be called Peter, meaning that he would be a solid rock in his faith and commitment to Jesus Christ, did Peter instantly become like that rock? No. He faltered, and he made many mistakes along the way. It was actually really messy. But Jesus stuck with Peter, because this didn't depend purely on Peter. This was also something that Jesus was interested in doing in Peter's life. There was, there was a, a teamwork approach, of course, but it wasn't just on Peter's strength that Peter would live to be a rock for Christ. So Jesus was patient with him. He corrected him many times. Jesus never stopped loving Peter and doing the work was, that was necessary for Peter to live up to his name. And even after denying Jesus three times before he was crucified... Jesus restored Peter and called him once again to follow him. 
Peter did follow Jesus. And in the book of Acts, especially, we see that Peter was a rock solid witness and minister for Jesus Christ. I think it's just amazing. Peter's average, guys. He's just like us. And if Jesus would call Peter to follow him in that way, he would do the same thing to you and me. In fact, he already has. In the same way that Andrew takes Simon to meet Jesus, we see a little later that that something happened similarly with a guy named Philip. So Jesus and and the guys who had already, he, he had collected, they go to another town and then they see Philip. Jesus invites Philip to follow him. What's Philip's first move after meeting Jesus? He wants to go and tell someone else about Jesus. So he goes to his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel is skeptical, but Philip tells him, see for yourself, come and take a look. So Nathaniel comes to meet Jesus. And as they're approaching, Jesus says, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Still skeptical, Nathaniel says, come on. How do you even know about me, man? Get real, right? So Jesus replies, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Evidently, Philip was sitting under a fig tree, not, or Nathaniel was sitting under a fig, a fig tree right when Philip found him. This is a detail about Nathaniel's life that that no one would have ever known unless maybe they were the son of God. So in this moment, Nathaniel's mind is blown, right? That Jesus would know this detail about him and he understands in his heart that Jesus is the real deal. Nathaniel says with excitement, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. So to paraphrase Jesus' response to Nathaniel, basically he's saying, okay, so you believe in me because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You ain't seen nothing yet. I love it, right? Like Jesus is just saying, oh man, get ready. The best is yet to come. And then to this whole group that is present, perhaps it's Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, probably James and John at this point as well. Jesus says this, this verse is, is, is amazing. Verse 51, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So Jesus is saying here that his followers will see that he is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the way to the Father. These disciples will see this plainly for themselves as Jesus' ministry is now beginning. He's not holding back anymore. He's starting to show himself to the world for who God sent him to be and who he truly is. This verse ties back to Genesis 28 where we read about uh, one of the pillars of the Old Testament, a man named Jacob, how he's had a dream. In his dream, it says in Genesis 28, verse 12, he sees a stairway. Some versions of the Bible say a ladder. And this stairway is resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus is our stairway to heaven. He is our only way to have relationship to the Father. And this is what Jesus is going to reveal to the entire world. Jesus knows you and me intimately, just like he knows Peter and just like he knows Nathaniel. He knows every detail about your life to this point, And he knows the details about your life in the future. And no matter who you are right now, he's calling you to a glorious future with him. Jesus is calling us to follow him, not so that we stay the same, but so that we are continually and daily changed 
to become all that he wants us to be. We see the beginning of this in Peter. We see the beginning of this in Nathaniel. And Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. I have so much in store for you and for this world and for everyone who chooses to follow me. You know, after reading this passage this week, there were two, pas- there were two other verses that so quickly came to mind for me that I thought just spoke perfectly about the heart that Jesus is inviting us to have for him today. The first verse is, is Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Andrew, Philip, Simon Peter, and Nathaniel, they all got a taste of the goodness of the Lord Jesus in today's passage. And their first interactions with the Messiah brought them joy. And they believed that he was the Son of God. And if that's just what one taste can do, if that's, just the, if that's the amount of joy that just one taste can bring, is it possible that our experiences with Jesus are not just meant, or not just able to be better, but they're meant to be better, to get stronger as we live for him and with him all the days of our life? I think so. And that's why 1 Peter 2 verse 23 says, Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into the full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. When's the last time, in in all honesty, when's the last time you would have defined a time between you and God as crying out for pure spiritual milk, for, for the spiritual blessings and nourishment that only he can provide? When's the last time you sat quietly and you said, Lord, I'm looking at my life and I'm thankful for what you've done to this point, but I'm not ready to say good enough. When's the last time you honestly prayed, got on your knees before the Lord and said, I want more. I need more, Jesus. You've been so faithful to me, but I know that there's more that you want for me to have. And now I'm asking for it because you tell me to right here in your word. You know, I think for so many of us, we hang our hat on the past. We say, I'm good. I got Jesus in my heart because when I was 12 years old, when I was in high school, when I got married, you know, back in this time of my life, I made this decision. So based on the past, I'm good in the present. Why do we look to the past? Why do we look to the past so easily? But then when it comes time to looking to the future and saying, Jesus, my life is yours. Why is that so much harder? I think it's because we like control, right? We like to be in charge of the future. We say, yeah, Jesus, I got you. And I'm going to take you into my future. That's the dumbest thing we could ever say. (laughs) Really, Jesus is saying to us, Hey, I have you. Let me take you into the future that I have for you. So friends, what we're going to do is we're actually going to give Jesus this time that he deserves. Right now where you are, I want you to quietly take some time. And would you come play a little bit just just to give us some background music? I'm going to ask you to quietly just take 
some time right where you are to cry out for pure spiritual nourishment. Cry out and ask Jesus for a future with him that is better than what you could imagine for yourselves. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And I know that you love him. We all do, but we want to learn to love him more. So why don't you pray right now asking Jesus, I just want a deeper love for you. I don't want my love to grow cold. Why don't you ask, Holy Spirit, I want to be more open to you. God, I want your word to speak to me. Actually, I need to give your word time to speak to me. Cry out for these things right now. Then we're going to take communion. You've heard the prayers of your people in this room today. You've heard those who are praying in their homes or wherever they are as they're watching online as well. We do not want to withhold from you our lives. I apologize on behalf of our church if we have held back from you what you deserve. You've called us to something so much greater than we could have called ourselves to. And we see that you, you know our future like you did with Peter. You called him to be something that he wasn't yet. And it took Peter a lifetime to strive for that. And it was through your grace and your mercy that you allowed him to become something that he could never be on his own. Jesus, for all of us, I pray that we would hunger for you, that we would crave you, that we would desire more, and that you, Father God, would answer those prayers and do a great work in our hearts, causing us to be what you desire for us to be for the glory of your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, that you, <laughs> that you think of things that we would never dream of. I love that about you. You're generous and you're kind and you love us more than we even love ourselves. What's more loving for us to do is to actually give over full control of our lives to you rather than to hold on to it. Because then we experience the best life that we could ever have. That's what it means to love ourselves by allowing Jesus to take control. Thank you, Lord, that you would do this. Amen.